Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to be able to bring to you the speaker presentations from the 2023 East End Conference. Organized by Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, Andrew Firth, and Carl Kopick, who also acted as MC for the event, took place on the 7th and 8th of October at the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street, in the heart of the East End of London. Sarah Bax Horton, One-Armed Jack, was Chaim Chaim's Jack the Ripper. Sorry, is everybody here? Is everyone thinking there's someone upstairs or... You're not, Andrew's not here. That's a great start. Or here mentally. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed your lunch. Um, one more reminder, the feedback forms are here. They go in a brown envelope once you finish, so we don't know who's written them. That's what you think. But I always figure it out. <laughs> always. Um, our next talk is from Sarah. So to my right, and it's about Heim Himes. It's very, very local. Uh, Wentworth Street is where he's from, so just around the corner from where we are. So please welcome Sarah. I discovered by chance through family history research that I had a police ancestor who worked on the Jack the River case. Oh, that's the bullet. Um, so my ancestor here on the left is Harry Garrett and he started his career uh, in Greenwich R Division and after 15 years as a constable, he was promoted to sergeant and he was transferred into Whitechapel's H, H Division in January 1888, which as we all know, was the most extraordinary timing. And he was based at Lemon Street Police Station, the headquarters of the Ripper investigation. Sorry, I've got a bit of feedback here. Yes, it's, um, it's put the Dalek voice setting. <laughs> That's great, I love Doctor Who. Um, so he was based at Lemon Street and he spent the bulk of the rest of his career there uh, until the end of 1896. And it has been a, a complete joy for me to write the book in his honour. My book is all about Robert Anderson, the CID chief of the day, his Polish Jew theory, and what Anderson said after his retirement in 1910 was that the case had been solved and there was no doubt whatever as to the identity of the criminal. And Robert Anderson gave some identifying features for Jack the Ripper. And he said that the criminal was a Polish Jew, an East Ender, living in the immediate vicinity of the murder locations, low class, meaning living <coughs> on the poverty line, and there was no doubt whatever about his identity. He started to kill when the mania or paroxysms seized him, 
Uh, paroxysms meaning fits, and I'm going to come back to this point later. And ended when admitted into a lunatic asylum in the parlance of the day. The only person who had ever had a good view of the murderer at once identified him, but when he learned that the suspect was a fellow Jew, he declined to swear to him in court. Donald Swanson's marginalia, so Swanson being the lead inspector on the case. And he said, um, when identified, this man was watched by the police, the city CID, by day and night. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm just going to put that down for some reason. Um, and in a short time, the suspect, with his hands tied behind his back, was sent to Stepney Workhouse and then to Colney Hatch and died soon afterwards. In, in actual fact, my suspect didn't die soon afterwards, but we'll come on to that as well. And Anderson's wife once remarked that the Ripper was interned at Stone Lunatic Asylum, which is near Dartford. And when I read these uh, characteristics, I suddenly start to realise that the Ripper might possibly be able to be identified by constructing what was known about him from contemporary police officers. I've put up the Petticoat Lane Market slide, not only because we happen to be located immediately outside of it, um, but because it was potentially at the epicentre of the Ripper's murderous activities. It also explains how difficult a task the police had to find a single man in the overcrowded and crowded streets of Whitechapel and Spitalfields. Several witnesses saw the Ripper and Clearly they didn't see him red-handed, but they saw him either accosting the women that he went on to kill, or escaping afterwards. And I should mention uh, that just for this talk, it's a very condensed version of the witnesses and my entire hypothesis. What those witnesses saw was a man of medium height and build between five foot five and five foot eight inches tall, stout and broad-shouldered, aged between 30 and 40, with a full face, dark hair, and moustache, and possibly a beard, wearing a dark jacket and, or coat, dark trousers, a bowler hat, or sometimes a peaked cap, and even a double peaked cap with a peak at the rear to keep the rain off your neck. He spoke colloquial English in a mild voice, and one witness saw a stiff arm, and two saw an unusual way of walking, a kind of shuffling walk with bent knees. So again, we have more characteristics uh, that are adding up here. So I'd like to introduce you to my prime suspect as Jack the Ripper, Hyam Hyams, a cigar maker who lived just off 
Wentworth Street, extremely close uh, to this location. And the files on him at Corney Hatch at the London Metropolitan Archives were only released 100 years after his death in 2013 and 2015. And just to mention also that Hyams is a good fit for the Thomas Bond profile, the top police surgeon of the day, who profiled a man he thought was a quiet and inoffensive man. And the FBI profile done 100 years later, which stated that he had some physical abnormality, scarring, or speech problem that he perceived was psychologically crippling. So when Haim Hyams went into medical facilities, which included workhouse infirmaries and asylums, he was weighed, measured, and described. So we know that he was aged 35 in 1888, <coughs> with dark brown hair, and he, was, he probably had a moustache or beard. However, the only photograph that we have of him is of several years later. He was five foot seven and a half inches tall, and he weighed 10 stone seven, and he was towards the top end of the modern BMI. He was noticeably broad-shouldered. He talked with a slight hesitancy of speech. And in February 1888, he'd broken his left elbow. And although this healed, it was probably untreated at the time. And he could not fully bend or extend his left arm, but he could use it. And at this point, he was actually unable to work as a cigar maker which required a great deal of manual dexterity, can't even say the word, uh, using two, um, both arms, both hands, and obviously use of a knife. So he was out of work, and we know from the records that he was later described as a general dealer or shopkeeper. So clearly he could work in a shop, but he wasn't able to work as a cigar maker. He had an irregular gait which presented as asymmetric foot dragging and he could not straighten his knees and he walked with them bent. So he had this documented uh, peculiar way of walking. And he suffered from severe epileptic seizures which it was not possible to treat well in the day. And uh, the period between them might explain the periodicity of the murders. And he was noted as being violent for a period of days after fitting. He was Jewish. Um, he was described as quiet, civil, and attentive to his personal appearance. And his wife, who provided the authorities with information purely to help uh, with the treatment of his medical and psychological conditions, she described him as kind and industrious. However, as we can see from the files, which were regularly updated over a period of many years about his condition, he was described as dangerous, treacherous, tearing his sheets, painting the walls with excrement, committing violent 
attacks on his wife when she visited him and to whom he was described as having a violent antipathy. He also attacked fellow inmates and medical staff and there was one attack using a sharpened piece of metal against the neck of a medical officer. He was an alcoholic who suffered from delirium tremens, which can cause hallucinations, and he was suspected to have syphilis. So in here we see some traits um, which um, have commonly been attributed to Jack the Ripper, such as um, having a venereal disease and so on. And his wife gave even more information about him. She said that her husband had the delusion that she was unfaithful to him with men who included his own brothers. She had suffered four miscarriages and claimed to live in fear of his violence. He suffered from paranoia, believing that his food was poisoned and often refusing to eat. And he thought that his wife and a certain Dr. Long had somehow caused his epilepsy, which came on in, in adulthood. And he had a terror of the police whom he believed were following him. And there may be some irony here when we consider that the City of London Police did claim to have uh, followed uh, a suspect. <coughs> So although my theory does include the earlier murder of Martha Tabram, I'm going to start with the canonical five and with Polly Nichols. And I probably don't need to recap too much about the victims, but I do write about them extensively in my book. And the, one of the main characteristics about the murder of Polly is that it was not witnessed at all and that although she had her throat cut and an abdominal cut, um, her killer was believed to have been interrupted and hence there were no further uh, mutilations. And in my argument, because Hyam Hyams had a weakened left arm, this encouraged him to carry out the blitz style of attack which immobilized his victims very quickly using partial suffocation, the cutting of the throat, and that his motivation was to remove the uterus uh, from each woman. And uh, the middle panel of this um, front page um, shows the murder, uh, details about the murder, uh, the leading um, police and other authorities who were involved in the case, uh, the discovery, and the media coverage starts to become sensational. And we're very lucky to have a photograph of the next victim in life, seen here with her husband, John. And Annie Chapman had a similar profile to the other victims, being a casual prostitute and semi-destitute, and suffering from the fact that there was no safety net in society. So if you were widowed or you left your husband, 
and you were unable to uh, make money by any other way, you were kind of hawking goods on the street and selling your body. And so Annie Chapman's body was found here in the backyard of a building on Hanbury Street and her <coughs> intestines were removed and laid out around her body um, and I won't go into uh, the other mutilations uh, but also laid out around her body with the contents of her pockets and two rings were taken from her finger that the police had, were unable to trace in the local pawn shops. And at this point there was real fear and panic on the streets of Whitechapel because the local community realised that there was a serial killer on the loose. And um, just a cut down version of some of the witnesses is discussed here. And so we have Elizabeth Long who didn't see the man's face but she did see a man accosting the victim leaning against the window shutters on the front of Hanbury Street. Um, I, I only saw that he had a brown hat and a dark coat. Um, he looked shabby genteel, meaning that his clothes were respectable and reasonable quality, but had probably seen better days, and whether they were second or third hand, we can only speculate. Um, they were talking loudly, and I heard him say, will you? The woman said, yes. Thomas Ede was a man who saw someone acting suspiciously a couple of hours after the murder, and not in the immediate vicinity. So in the kind of Cambridge Heath Road area. And what Ede said about the man was he seemed to have a wooden arm, he was about five foot eight inches high, about 35 years of age, with a dark moustache and whiskers. He wore a double peak cap, a short dark brown jacket, and a pair of clean white overalls over dark trousers. The man walked as though he had a stiff knee and had a fearful look about the eyes. Now this man spotted by Ede was later identified as being a man called the well-known harmless lunatic John James. And it's hard for me to discount that definite identification, although the man does seem to be a rather good match to Hyam Hyams. However, this was my eureka moment when I realized that there might be something very distinctive about Hyam Hyam's uh, physical characteristics that could be matched back to the Ripper. And this is why I've chosen the name One-Armed Jack, although my identification does not rely on the arm, but mainly the peculiar gait and other aspects. And finally here, a man called John Thimbleby, who worked at a local brewery, said that at six o'clock that morning, a man attracted his particular attention before he heard of the murder. He was hurrying from Hanbury Street, below where the murder took place, into Brick Lane. He was walking, almost running, 
and had a peculiar gait, his knees not bending when he walked. He was wearing a dark, uh, stiff hat and cutaway coat, reaching to his knees. His face was clean-shaven and he seemed about 30. So we've got um, the peculiar gait, which is particularly noted um, by this eyewitness, John Thimblebeam. So we now come on to the double event when two murders were committed within about 45 minutes of each other on the same night. And uh, the victim, Elizabeth Stride, um, the first one, she was Swedish-born, a widow. She cleaned for Jewish families on the Sabbath, had learned some Yiddish, and appeared to be out on a kind of date. Again, like Polly Nichols, her killer was believed to have been interrupted because her throat was cut, but she had no other injuries. And of the double event, I say that Elizabeth strides hours before her murder were the most witnessed, but that Catherine Eddowes was the best witnessed. And because you all know the subject so well, I don't particularly <coughs> propose to go through all of these um, witness sightings. But um, there's a remarkable degree of consistency. And also, Elizabeth Stride was wearing what might be called as a buttonhole. She, so she was wearing a flower with some foliage um, pinned to her dress. And as well as her quite distinctive look, um, she was uh, being identified by the eyewitnesses um, for those characteristics in the mortuary. So we have the, the two men at the bricklayer's arms who see a couple, a couple kind of kissing and sheltering from the rain in the doorway. We have Matthew Packer, the fruiterer, who sold them a bag of black grapes. And he gave um, an accurate description of stride. And he gave a description which might arguably uh, equate to Hyam Hyams, again, being a man about five foot five or five foot seven, stoutish, broad-shouldered, respectably dressed, and so on. William Marshall was a local resident who again saw the cu couple kissing and cuddling. Five foot five, rather stoutish, decently dressed someone who looked like a respectable middle-aged man. We have a police constable, William Smith, who says something extremely similar. And he sees um, the man also carrying a, a newspaper or a parcel covered in newspaper. James Brown, similar testimony, another local resident. And then at 12.45, when the body was discovered at around 1 a.m., a Hungarian immigrant called Israel Schwartz saw a man hit the woman, believed to be Elizabeth Stride, to the, gra to the ground. And the man who was with her shouted out something we believe to be Lipsky and frightened um, Schwartz away. Um, and again, that description of the man is consistent with the other eyewitnesses of the night. 
and just belatedly to show you that list because I forgot to press the video. <laughs> Catherine Eddowes. She was so destitute that her partner pawned the boots that he was wearing to try to get them money for food and shelter. Her body was found 45 minutes after that of Elizabeth's stride. And her throat was cut, but the killer was clearly not interrupted because of the extent of the mutilations which followed, which included facial mutilations. And as I say, hers was the best witness of all of the murders. And there was also a piece of physical evidence, which we know is the Goulston Street graffito, and the words, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. And um, the handwriting is that of a police officer. The words and their spacing across the lines are very much under dispute. And as we know, um, the Metropolitan Police decided to wash off the graffito, which was just made in chalk, um, before it was photographed, um, because it was felt that there might be reprisals against the local Jewish stallholders, because Petticoat Lane Market was um, shortly about to open. And the man on the right is the man believed to be the reluctant witness, which is um, Joseph Lavender. And what we know about Joseph Lavender is that it was reported um, that he was uh, kept under police protection after the murder. And this may have well been to try to deter the press who were becoming a nuisance in terms of trying to interview uh, the witnesses and so on. And Lavender said that the man was taller than her with this peaked cap, pepper and salt jacket, and a rough looking fellow. And now I'd like to come on to the City of London police because the murder within the square mile at Mitre Square brought a whole new force multiplier in the form of the city police. Robert Sagar on the left was a leading detective. And what he said was that a police officer met a well-known man of Jewish appearance coming out of the court near the square and a few moments later fell over the body. He blew his whistle and other officers running up, they set off in pursuit of the man who had just left. So we have Sagar saying that the killer was under pursuit by the City of London police immediately after the murder. The officers were wearing India rubber boots and the retreating footsteps of a man could be clearly heard. The sounds were followed to King's Block in the model dwellings in Stony Lane, but we did not see the man again that night. And Chaim Chaim's brother Mark was living in North Block in Artisan's dwellings, which is the exact location being described. 
and where better for him to hide out. And we do believe that there was a hideout because there does seem to be a time delay between the exit from Mitre Square and the depositing of the torn corner of Catherine Eddowes' apron underneath the graffito at Gilston Street. And similarly to the Metropolitan Police officers, Sagar said the Ripper was identified without doubt but could not be formally identified and was admitted to a lunatic asylum. The officer on the right was Sagar's co colleague, Harry Cox. And Cox also said some very interesting things about the Ripper. Uh, it was a man from the East End uh, and a misogynist who at some time or other had been wronged by a woman. And the fact that his victims were of the lowest class proves he belonged to their own class. And Cox described a surveillance operation in East End of London after the murder of Mary Jane Kelly, which lasted for nearly three months. And as you know, Cox actually described following the man on one occasion, seeing him accost a woman, uh, but he just left her and returned home. And as we'll see later, Hyam Hyams was at liberty for three months. And when you put this together with his terror of the police that he, who you believed were following him, um, this might be a possible match. This is a modern day map, which I just used uh, because I, I find it easier to follow, actually. Um, but what this map shows is, number one is uh, Mitre Square, number two is where Artisan's dwellings was, so the potential hideout, <coughs> and then between number two and three, just below number three, which is Hyam Hyam's lodgings on Wentworth Street, uh, we have the corner of Goulston Street, where the corner of the apron and the graffito were left. And the last of the canonical five, Mary Jane Kelly, um, was discovered, her body was discovered in late morning at her lodgings with horrific uh, mutilations. And her killer was not interrupted at all. He, he was in complete privacy and he stayed uh, for as long as he wished to. And there are several um, eyewitnesses, really, or people who commented on Mary Jane's coming and going uh, from Miller's Court uh, that night. And Mary Ann Cox uh, seemed to have seen a man who was a client of Mary Jane Kelly, the one probably immediately before the Ripper, which was the, um, the man described with the um, the carroty moustache, the ginger-haired man with the carroty moustache. However, Kelly was seen out later on Commercial Street by George Hutchinson, a man who knew her well and has been commented as being potentially her pimp. And what George Hutchinson saw was a man aged about 34 or 35 
five foot six with a slight moustache and dark hair, very, very surly looking, smartly dressed, which I'm going to refer to later, with a respectable appearance and a, a Jewish appearance also. <coughs> and what Hutchinson said was that he walked very sharp, meaning fast. Some of the other newspaper accounts have he walked very soft. And so Chaim Hyams had a very distinctive walk and his stiff knees and asymmetric foot dragging might have contributed towards a very quiet step. Um, but certainly the general description fits him. And I just query whether it was Hutchinson's description which really put the police on the trail of Jack the Ripper and was Jack the Ripper high and high. So I have some additional theories which I've put in just for you. They are in the book, but I don't include them in my talk for a general audience. And I actually mastered PowerPoint to be able to put in these <laughs> very delightful bullets that I'm so pleased with myself. So I do have a race day theory, which is um, that all of the murders, including that of Martha Tabor, which I'm going to come on to, do seem to have taken place on horse racing days and sometimes quite significant dates in the horse racing calendar. Now, Chaim Chaim's brother Mark was actually um, convicted of carrying out fake lotteries on the street and also at a race course. So there was potentially a link between this family and trying to make money out of horse racing, even by carrying out um, unauthorised activities with members of the public. Um, so we've got the dates also fitting, and it was possible to get to and from London to places outside on what was called a cheap, fast, special train. It might also account for Elizabeth Stride's <clears throat> buttonhole, which might have been the buttonhole of a smartly dressed man attending the races. And we know from George Hutchinson that the last man seen with her was very smartly dressed, carrying a newspaper, newspaper parcel, um, which, um, going back to Liz Stride now, sorry, I'm, I'm veering between um, Stride and the other murders. Um, but the paper could have been the Sporting Times or a race day programme. And certainly the horseshoe tie-pin seen by George Hutchinson and the thick chain with a seal and red stone. The latter could have been a horse racing admission pass, which you normally wear for the whole of your duration at the course, rather than what George Hutchinson thought was a very expensive watch and chain. And again, the Ripper, or whoever he was, might have uh, been flush with some winnings, or pretended to be, and promised them to the women he accosted. I do also cover the non-fatal attacks in February of 1888 when Annie Millwood was attacked 
and that coincides with the time of Chaim Chaim's arm injury when he was unable to work and living in pain, presumably not sleeping well, and this may have been part of his trigger to, to kill or attack women. And I do cover the Annie Farmer case, which was after the murder of Mary Jane Kelly. And I consider that the method of killing the woman used um, with Farmer, or I'm sorry, I beg your pardon, but the approach, because it's a non-fatal attack, but that helps with the Mary Jane Kelly murder, because Farmer said that the man remained fully clothed, and he waited, he spent an hour or more with her, a period of time was spent before he actually attempted to cut her throat, and that does seem to fit in quite well with what we believe happened with Mary Jane Kelly. So not words I ever expected to say in public. Um, we know that Chaim Hyams swallowed stones and rags that would pass through his body. And in terms of um, what he did with the trophies which he took from the women, in particular their organs, I have speculated whether what's called pika, uh, which is eating um, objects, um, or sexual cannibalism may have played a part. And there are other physical and behavior, behavioral characteristics that might link Chaim Hyams to the Ripper, including um, his very mild, hesitant way of speaking, and the tearing of sheets, which he was doing at the asylum, which was a characteristic in the Mary Jane Kelly murder. And I also query whether the knife found by Thomas Coram and handed to Constable Drage um, on a Whitechapel Road doorstep in the early hours of Monday the 1st of October, so really about 24 hours after the double event, uh, might have been uh, a ripper knife. And he certainly seems to have used a shorter, sharper knife for the murder of Mary Jane Kelly, and that's documented. So clearly we don't have enough photos of Gunthorpe Street. <laughs> so back to the beginning, Martha Tabram. Admittedly, there's quite a different modus operandi she was seen with a soldier, but it was considerably before the time when she was believed to have been killed. And so she is a, a very good query as a ripper killing. And in part of my analysis, I look at the fact that serial killers, in a way that might be counterintuitive to us, their first kill is extremely close to home. So they kill somewhere where they feel comfortable. And the murder location, which is kind of um, obviously at the other end of um, Gunthorpe Street or George Yard, is extremely close, within less than two minutes' walk from High and High's lodgings on Wentworth Street. So what happened to High and Hyams at the end? Well, in late December 1888, when he was living 
on Jubilee Street, which I believe those of you who went on Adam's Walk uh, saw last night. Um, he was picked up, perhaps with some irony, on Lemon Street. And he was considered to be a wandering lunatic and sent to Stepney Workhouse Infirmary. He was discovered to be suffering from delirium tremens, and once treated, he was released in January. And this period of three months between his release and his um, re-entry into medical facilities that April is the three months which, which I propose might have been the City of London Police surveillance operation. In April 1888, while trying to attack his wife with what was described as a chopper, not quite sure if this was like an axe or more like a kind of meat cleaver, um, but he, uh, he attempted to attack his wife and he hit his mother and he was sent to Colney Hatch in a straight jacket and I recall that he, other officers described that the ripper was um, in restraint or with his hands tied behind his back Hyams was in a straight jacket. Extraordinarily, that August he was released for one week, after which he stabbed his wife and was sent to Bow Workhouse Infirmary and then Stone Lunatic Asylum at Dartford. And you'll know where I'm heading with this that the three locations where the Ripper was said to have been held were Stepney, Colney Hatch, and Stone. They are very geographically disparate, even more so in those days, and Heinheims was held at those three locations. And in January 1890, he was transferred from Stone to Colney Hatch, where he <coughs> remained for the next 23 years. And he died there on the 22nd of March, 1913, of exhaustion from epilepsy and cardiovascular degeneration and he did have dementia in his later years as well. And that is the basis of my evidence-led hypothesis that Hyam Hyams was Jack the Ripper. Thank you, Sarah. Congratulations, particularly on your success with Tarpoint. I've never mastered that myself. Um, it, it's interesting to me, I've always wondered about what happened between Mitre Square and Goulston Street when P.C. Long said that wasn't there 15 minutes ago. What did he do in that last hour? That would explain that. If he's living somewhere between them. That's quite interesting. Questions, please, for Sarah. Hi, you're right. I really enjoyed the book. What led I, I totally agree with you with the, with the racetrack connection. What led you to that? I, I, I was fascinated by the Croydon races. I never knew until, until I read your book how big an event that was and how significant. But what led you to that connection? Because I think it's really significant. I'm clearly somebody who doesn't really have enough to do. Because I spent a few days thinking about the horseshoe type here. And I really felt that that was a clue. And so I was thinking about the cabinet. 
and um, I knew that they had a kind of union and they had kind of shelters and so on. And I looked to see what their logo was. And uh, just to disappoint you, I can't quite remember what it was, but it wasn't a horseshoe. And so then I thought of the races, because I have been lucky enough to have been to, as many of us, mainly for a boozy day out, you know, been to a few races. And I've also had this very big kind of admission pass that you put through your buttonhole and you have to wear all the time. And so I thought about the races, and then I started to check the dates. And I also had um, Haim Haim's brother Mark conducting a fake lottery at, I, I believe it was Litchfield races, and being not only charged but con convicted and fined and so on. So I did have the existing connection. And the more I looked into it, the more I thought it was right. And I did look up the um, admission passes of the day, and they are very similar to the modern day ones where you have a very decorative piece of effectively cardboard but on a very thick string and very highly decorated and colourful. And so I, I did think about the red seal and the thick chain that George Hutchinson saw because I was convinced that um, the Ripper was, was, was poverty-stricken and was a local man. And so I didn't really understand why both for Elizabeth Stride and for um, Mary Jane Kelly, why he was perceived to be so well-dressed and well-presented and having this newspaper or newspaper parcel. Um, and so when I looked at it again, I thought, well, yes, you do dress up to go to the races. And I believe um, his sister was a tailor. And so he might have been able to access reasonable quality clothing, but I don't believe that the clothing and the artifacts were of such quality that Hutchinson thought. So the type-in, I'm sure, would have been brass and so on. But clearly the whole kind of spectacle. And uh, maybe George Hutchinson thought, well, you know, Mary Jane's luck is in this evening because she's got someone with money. Always great to get George referenced. Always. Uh, anyone else? No. Oh, Susie's got a question. I think this one's working. Oh. Adam's going to be another one. Or Ben did the other one. Um, when I met Keith Skinner at the Metropolitan Police Archives, right at the beginning when I just discovered I had a Met Police officer who worked on the case, and I didn't really know much about the case, although I had been on a ripper walk many years beforehand, which was possibly conducted by Donald Rumbelow. Um, Keith said, yeah, he wasn't kind of trying to sell me his books, but he thought I should get uh, the source book because I was going to the National Archives and using the um, microfilm, which is actually quite hard work and heavy going, and I was trying to type it up on my iPad on the spot. So he said, well, you could get the source book, and I said, thank you, I didn't realise it existed, and he said you could get the A to Z. And so I got both, and I read the A to Z 
from beginning to end, which I believe is probably unusual. And I also caused a bit of commotion at the Metropolitan Police Archives by sitting there for months and reading 23 years of police orders from beginning to end, which I have to admit was a flick, not a read, because I was looking for mention of my police ancestor and I did find him. But um, they said, well, if you're doing that, you probably are going to write this book, aren't you, Sarah? And I said, yes, I'm going to write the book. And so when I read the A to Z, um, unusually, Haim Hyams has quite a big double page entry with the photograph and, you know, quite a long write-up against him. And when I started looking at the Polish Jew theory, I was collecting the best candidates for being that suspect or individual. And Haim Hyams interested me. And when I started looking him up, I thought, this is really interesting. I need to read the Colney Hatch files. They were only released in 2013 and 2015. And they described someone who had serious um, mental health issues. I should say that he was certified as insane and he was believed to be dangerous. And this is why he was kept at Colney Hatch and not transferred out again as some of the other individuals and indeed suspects were. And so the more I looked at Haim Hyams, the more I liked the look of him. And then at some point I had the eureka moment about the arm and the <coughs> way of walking. And he had like yellow spots on his eyes, you know, thinking of the Stephen White, the glowworm eyes, and the very mild, hesitant manner of speech, and his residence at Wentworth Street and so on and then I thought actually I'm not going to write a generalized book about my, my preferred half a dozen suspects as Anderson's suspect I'm going to write a book about Haim Hyams. Thank you very much, thank you sir. And that was Sarah Bax Horton on Ripper suspect Haim Hyams at the 2023 East End Conference. I would like to thank the organizers of this event for making the release of the talks available to RipperCast again this year. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find hundreds of conference talks, roundtable discussions, archive recordings, and author interviews all about the Whitechapel murders and Victorian true crime. Thank you all for listening. See you next time.